Breaking the Glass, episode 14. Who are some other mentors who are valuable in your development of your professional career? I think they were my major mentors. Um, My just a life mentor um, has been both of my grandmothers, my Mm. maternal and paternal grandmothers, who both were very hard workers and at the forefront of leadership at the time that they um, came of age where it was not popular for women to be in roles of leadership. So I've learned a lot of life lessons from them. Yeah. Um, What's one good lesson? Don't, don't let anyone ignore the haters, right? That's (laughs) right. right, That's what it is. But, but you know, um, don't let anyone tell you who you are, Mm. you know, forge your own path. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass Show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 14. My guest today is Judge Tara Doss. Tara is an administrative law judge at the Office of Administrative Hearings in California. She actually comes from a family of lawyers, and she went to Michigan University for undergrad and then to University of Southern California, the Trojans, for her law degree. Fight on. Tara did get a lifelong mentorship, though, from her father, who was a lawyer, who owned his own law firm. He also was a judge, and Tara sort of followed in his footsteps. After law school, she started out doing public interest law because it was a place where her heart led her to, as opposed to going to the big corporate law firms. She did that for a couple of years, working for a private firm, and then she went on to work for herself, running her own law firm, so that she can get experiences in other areas of the law and business and and a number of other different areas to expand her breadth of knowledge about the law. When she had experience in a number of different areas, she decided that it was time to focus in on special education law. She had already gotten experience advocating for the parents and continued to deepen that work. Then she moved on to doing work on the side of representing the school districts so she can get a full picture for both sides of how the situation will be handled for the benefit of the kids. You know, people who want to do social work and work with kids may be able to have an impact on an entire school or even an entire school district by doing the type of work that Tara did. So I want you to listen for that kind of inspiration during the course of this interview. Once she got that experience, she actually took it to the next level herself and became an administrative law judge to do just that. She's able to work in a position where she adjudicates and sometimes mediates different situations that occur between parents and school systems on how they can best represent and treat uh, the children who may have special needs in the educational system. In addition to the work she does in the law, she uses her law degree to have benefit in society in general. She's a member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. She's been on the board of an academy charter school, and she's also been on the board of governors for the California Women's Lawyers. And just recently, Tara was voted president of the Black Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, 
where she has an opportunity to help young lawyers and even young law students start to build their career and the skills they need to be successful lawyers in the marketplace. It's a wide-ranging interview where we talk about the law, we talk about what it's like to be a parent, and how you can best and most effectively advocate for your children, and also uh, advocate and use the law to the benefit if you work together with the school districts. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and have fun in the conversation like I did, so please enjoy my conversation with Tara Doss. So welcome to the show, Tara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, what we normally start off with, Tara, is a little bit of uh, what I call the lightning round background. So if you could just please do a little survey of your time growing up um, and what that was like for you. I was born in Lansing, Michigan, which is a fairly small city, but capital of Michigan, um, to two loving parents. Nice. Um, I have three siblings, two brothers and a sister, Um I spent most of my childhood in and around Lansing, Michigan, um, but my parents did move us to Los Angeles for about three years while I was in elementary school. Um, My parents um, divorced when I was about um, eight years old or so, and I lived with my father and my younger brother Hmm. um, from that age until I graduated from high school and went to college. Um, I had a, you know, separate and apart from dealing with issues that kids do when parents separate, I had a pretty um, healthy and happy childhood. As far as I can recall, Um, I was always very active in sports and a good student. Okay. Um, what was your favorite just, sports? My favorite sport was basketball. Okay. Were you good? Of course I was good. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't good enough to go play in college, but I was a good high school player. Good. I enjoyed it. That was probably my favorite. I also played volleyball, ran track. Yeah. Did softball. Very nice. So just I like to stay busy. And you said you're a good student. Did you have any favorite subjects? Um, My favorite subjects probably were uh, English. I really, I always like to write. And I enjoyed math until I got to college and it got too hard. Hmm. Right. (laughs) Where did you go to college? University of Michigan. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, USC played Michigan and uh, one of the... Bowl games back, I think it was 2004 at the Rose Bowl. Gave it to those Wolverines mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. Well, I went to USC for law school, so hey. I wasn't completely mad about that game. Okay, that's good. You were on both sides. That's very nice. That's um, uh, a lot of times whenever people in college, they try to figure out where they want to go career-wise. What made you decide to go down the path of the law? Well, I think I was very fortunate in that I come from a family of lawyers. Mm. So I had um, the experience of seeing them as I was growing up. Okay. My father uh, was an attorney. He's now a judge. My um, hi- Both of his brothers were also lawyers. And then I had um, other family and friends around me who were lawyers. So wow. um, when I was a teenager, I volunteered or... I don't know if volunteered. I don't remember told, if, if my dad. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he paid me, but I volunteered in my dad's um, 
office during summers and got some experience then. And um, so I didn't I didn't know that I wanted to go to law school right away. I didn't have dreams of always becoming a lawyer. And even in college, um, I didn't decide until my last year in college that I was going to apply for law school. But I think I decided to because it was something familiar to me, Right. because I had um, family who were lawyers. And so that seemed like a career that was accessible to me. Very nice. That's um, you're one of the first people who I've interviewed who that's been the case where you had a family that surrounds you with that type of professional atmosphere, high aspirations and those goals. And um, is that was that normal for you with um, other black law students or minority law students, was it normal to have to be like a family of professionals like that? Or do you feel like you were an anomaly? I don't know if I would say I was an anomaly. I definitely have other um, peers who are lawyers who came from um, professional families, but I wouldn't say that was common. Right. I would say with other black students, there were most likely or not most likely, but, um, there were more of my classmates who were the first lawyers in their right. families than those who were following in the footsteps of other lawyers they had in their families. Did you, um, did it, did it give you any advantages you think when you're in law school and preparing for it and knowing what you're getting yourself into? Most definitely. I think it did because, um, if I ever ran into a situation that I was unsure about, if I ever needed advice, I could always go to my father. So I had um, built-in mentors already um, without having to go and seek them out. Nice. So, yeah, I would say that it gave me an advantage. What was one of the experiences where you feel like, man, I got to ask my father about this and see how to navigate through some challenging situation, either undergrad or when you're in law school? My, I'm very close to my father, and, and I like to think of him as um, one of my advisors, so to speak. He's always been um, very good at giving advice because he never said, you have to do this or, you know, do this or else. Or He, right. he has always given very level-headed advice, like, um, these are your options. This is what I think but you have to make a decision. Yeah. And so he's been like that, you know, since I was a child. And so as I became an adult, um, I continued and felt comfortable with going to him about um, questions that I had hmm. um, because I knew that he would give me very level-headed advice. And so I went to him about whether or not I should go to law school, whether yeah. he thought that was a good idea. And then as I was going through law school, um, talking to him about which career path I should take. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I didn't always listen, um, <laughs> but at least I, I could use him as a sounding board sure. to make those decisions. And even now, as I progress through my career with making different moves, yeah. you know, I've, I usually go to him um, to ask him his opinion and advice. Yeah. No, that's and you, there wasn't a requirement that you did what he said. It sounds like, which is good. I, I hope to do that for my kids. And I, I wonder, do you do that now with your kids? So you have two kids of your own, and um, do you do that with them? Do you try to steer them, or do you try to? And they're younger kids. Do you try to steer them, or do you try to give them the information and let them make make their own decisions in terms of your plan for raising them? 
I am definitely an information parent. Okay. I don't want to um, push my own wants and desires on them. I want them to be able to um, make their own decisions because that's an important piece about being a successful adult is that you have to be able to make your own decisions. So I'm starting young and my husband is starting young mm-hmm. um, in terms of giving them the tools to make their own decisions. Yeah. Um, and yes, so for, um, in order to do that, um, you know, I like to give them the information and give them choices. Yeah. You know, you can, um, watch TV if you like, but first you need to make up your bed. It's your choice. You don't have to make up your bed, but you also won't be able to watch TV. Right. Right. So I, I like to try to do that to let them know that they do have some choice, um, in the decisions that they make. Yeah. And the choices have consequences. Exactly. Well, so do you, do you recall like any critical choices in your, um, either at school or early in your career that you felt like, man, it was whether you went with your dad's advice or not that you thought, man, let me really ask him about this so I can be sure. Just something in general. I've always wanted to do things, um, very quickly, yeah. you know, for instance, um, I wanted to graduate from high school early, yeah. you know, in three years so I could go start college early. And I always wanted to do things on an accelerated basis and he would never let me do it. Mm. You know, he kind of, again, not in a, Absolutely not. I said no because I said no, and that's final. But, you know, talking me through it and the reasons why um, I shouldn't do things so quickly, mostly because of my age at the time Mm. and not wanting to put me in kind of more mature situations before I was ready. So that was probably a first instance in high school, not letting me graduate early from high school, and then also not letting me graduate as early as I wanted to in college. Hmm. Um, My my, um, paternal grandmother, my um, father's sister, yeah. Um, and then another cousin all graduated from college when they were 19 years old. Wow. And I really wanted to do that. Yeah. That was a, a goal that I had my eyes set on. Okay. And so I had figured out how to do it almost. My birthday is November 29th. So the winter graduations are in December. Yeah. So I figured out how I could do it just after my 19th birthday. And I was really excited. And I was like, Dad, I'm going to graduate in two and a half years. And and he was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Hmm. Because what are you going to do, you know, during that last semester? You're not going to be doing anything productive. Right. And so he said, um, you can do it if you'd like. But I will no longer be contributing financially (laughs) (laughs) to your lifestyle. So if you're ready to become an adult, you can do it. But you'll you'll be fully an adult and you will be responsible for yourself. So I thought about it. I gave it a lot of thought. And I decided to stay um, one more semester. I still got to graduate early um, in three years, but. Very nice. It was probably smart in hindsight. Okay. Are there, um, just out of curiosity, because my dad didn't like, he didn't totally tell us what to do, but he kind of did sometimes. Um, but in terms of where I went to college, he didn't, 
mandate anything. He just similarly, you know, was like, here's the money we got for school if you want to go. Here's some free options if you can, if you want to take them. Um, do you ever look back and think, oh, man, if I had it to do again, I would have gone this other way versus that based on any of that advice? I don't because um, I'm not a hindsight kind of person. Mm. I try not to live with regrets. I try to make very reasoned decisions in the present Mm. so I don't have to live with regret. Um, And I'm also a believer that um, the choices that we make along the way, whether they were the best choices at the time or not, lead us to where we are today. And so... Perhaps, you know, I could have made some different choices, but then I wouldn't be in the position that I am today. Yeah, got it. So after law school, um, you worked first at, it was Adams Esquire was the first place you worked at, um, representing families of children with special needs. So it started right away, um, this part of your career. What made you go there? What made you choose that path in the first place? And what what is that career like and how, how was it like at Adams? So what I'll say is that in many law schools, especially the top tier law schools, there, at least when I was in school, there was a um, push for students to move on and go into big law firms or um, corporate environments. Right. And um, right away, I knew that that really wasn't my path and that wasn't what I was interested in doing. Okay. So while in law school... Why not? Um, at the time, I didn't, I didn't know why not. I just didn't see myself in a big corporate law firm environment. Right. Got it. Um, and it wasn't until I started volunteering in law school, working with... Um, low-income individuals or individuals who um, historically have not had access to legal representation, Mm -hmm. um, that that really sparked an interest in me. Got it. Um, I enjoyed working um, face-to-face with an individual and being able to help problem-solve whatever issues they were having and to help them resolve it. Um, And then I realized... Um, I wanted to do something serving the public interest. And so that area of law is called public interest law, where you are typically working with a nonprofit organization, which could be a legal aid organization, or another nonprofit that's focused on usually one particular area of law, helping low-income or no-income individuals with different aspects of the law. Yeah. So... Once I determined that, I started looking for those opportunities. Yeah. Um, once I graduated, I started applying for those type of opportunities Got with it. different nonprofits. And what I learned as I was um, applying for different organizations was that the salary was very low. Yeah. Um, which um, is very sad in a way because there's such a great need for... Um, public interest lawyers. Okay. Um, but many lawyers coming out of law school with debt just can't afford to take those jobs. Yeah. I mean, there were jobs 
where I looked at the salary and doing the calculations, I realized I would have to get a second job mm. so just how to low support are we myself. I mean, we're talking about at that time in the 20, 000, $20 to $40,000 range wow. for starting salary. As an attorney, you feel As like you'd probably attorney. be making some more than that. Yeah. I mean, that was lower than one year of law school, than the wow. cost for one year of law school. Yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't wrap my mind around that. Right. Um, so. And did you yourself have student loans that you had to think about? I did have student yeah. loans. Okay. Yes. And so um, the opportunity at Adams ESQ came along um, through a chance meeting um, with a woman who was the owner of the firm who had recently started yeah. a law firm um, representing children with special needs. Um and she was looking for lawyers. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, she was also offering um, a decent salary. Right. Um, and so I found this as a great opportunity to combine my desire to help others and with your desire help to the under, underserved. <laughs> yes, with my desire to pay my bills. Right. And uh, I feel very fortunate in finding that. It was a great uh, first opportunity for me. And I learned a lot. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what, when you represented families, what's, what's, what kind of stories could you tell us to see how you helped folks at that time? Like what type of cases were you seeing and, and how did that work out at, at Adams ESQ? So special education law uh, from the um, parent advocate or student advocate perspective um, usually comes down to parents feeling that their students need a certain type of um, educational services to help them um, make progress in school or to achieve certain goals. Right. And so families would come to us and um, they may not have even been in the dispute um, stage yet, yep. but they knew that um, their child was not learning the way that they felt they should be learning and that they needed help. And so we would help advise them on the steps to take through the, there is a pretty, um, pretty intricate um, special education process that mm. you have to go through as a parent yeah. to, um, for instance, request an evaluation, um, then after you request an evaluation and the evaluation is completed, you have to go to what's called an IEP meeting right. where there are a lot of people sitting around a table talking about your child. Yeah. Um, so the parent has to be there. The parent is also an important member of the team. Okay. You know, trying to make decisions sure. about what type of program or services can help their child make progress and hopefully, um, succeed to the point where they no longer will need special education services depending on the severity of their disability. Yeah. And so what I took from that role with that job was um, learning compassion, mm -hmm. number one, for what um, parents and families were going through because yeah. having a child with special needs takes um, can take an emotional toll on the family. Sure. And um, so I didn't have children yet at that time. And so initially 
it was difficult to wrap my mind around that because on some level I couldn't relate right? because I didn't have my own children yet. Um, but it did help me learn that compassion piece. It helped me learn how, um, how little many parents knew about the process and, yeah. and just at the basic level, how to advocate for their child, because whether your child has special needs or not, I think on some level as parents, we believe in our educators right. and we believe that we're sending our kids off to be educated in an environment that's going to foster their growth. Yeah. And, um, that's not always the case. Um, sometimes it is, which is, those are, are great, um, great opportunities when or great situations when that is the case, but it is not always the case. And if it isn't as a parent, you need to be um, equipped with the tools to be able to advocate for your child and believe that it is your right to advocate for your child. All right. I have two questions. Um, first of all, what if, if I'm a person, if a person now is in law school or they're thinking about going to law school and they want to get into um, this field of law, either um, you call it, what is it, public, what kind of public? Public interest law. So public interest law or specifically in advocating for children um, and their educational needs. What kind of characteristics would that person look inside and say, now you looking back, you can say like, oh, I think like this is part of what motivated me to want to go into that field. Um, so what kind of characteristics should a person have or do they need to have to be successful in this this career? Um, and then what are some of the tools that a parent needs to be successful advocating for their for their child? So so first, what kind of person does it does it take to be successful in this um, this area of the law? In public interest law, I think you need compassion because you are dealing with um, often. You are dealing with people who may not have made um, the best choices in their lives. So like the parents may not have? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes okay. the parents may have not made the best choices in or is their that, lives. Or is that how you're referring to? But just in general. Yeah. So in public interest law in general, oh, when gotcha. you're working with um, indigent, which is no income um, or impoverished um, people. Yeah. Um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes these are people who may not have made the best choices in life. Right. And so you need to have compassion for um, where their stories and where they've come from. Yeah. You have to have, um, um, you have to be non-judgmental right. um, of, you know, their lives and their choices mm. and all of that. And you have to be able to give advice in a non-judgmental way. Right. Um, and keep your um, eye on the prize, which is to help them with whatever legal issues they're, they're yeah. having. But in saying that, you have to realize that when you're working with a population of um, low-income or indigent individuals, that you are not, often you are not just their lawyer. You are their counselor. Mm. You are their resource for many other things outside of the law. Right. Um, you Such often as. are their um, social services, yeah. different social service um, programs. Um, it could be housing programs. Yeah. Um, it 
if they do have children, it could be educational programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it runs the gamut. Like food, um, clothing, food, healthcare, everything. Basic needs. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so you have to be ready to do that, ready and willing to do that. Yeah. Um, versus just staying in your lane as a lawyer. Right. Um, you don't always get that opportunity. Now, with respect to advocating for um, parents, advocating for their children, Tell me your question on that one again. Yeah. Before we get there, um, with respect to uh, what you said in terms of what you have to have to be like, you can't maybe tell people's individual stories, but could you tell either a type of story or a a type of person that either you had to work hard to push through your own maybe judgments that you felt inclined to make, but set those aside and have compassion or you may you may naturally be more of a compassionate person. So you could, you kept your eyes on the prize. What's take us inside of the work. Like what's the kind of story, what's the kind of person you dealt with? What's the kind of work that you dealt with to have to, to, to work through. When I was a parent attorney, parent advocate, um, I, I worked with many parents who were dealing with mental health issues of their own. Yeah. And, who sometimes had difficulty making decisions mm. because of their own either mental health or intellectual disabilities. Yeah. And so sometimes what may happen is um, you may question that person's ability to parent their child mm. um, because of their own, the own the issues or obstacles that they are overcoming on their own. Right. And so those are the things... Um, for example, that I were when I would have to push out those judgmental thoughts, yeah. and you just realize that um, parents, for the most part, do the best that we can do right. with the tools that we've been given. Yeah, and. I had to focus on that many times. And again, that was before I had children. So that was more difficult. And now in hindsight, I can see um, that more clearly. Yeah. You know, being a parent, period, is not easy. And then being a parent who has to overcome some obstacles of your own mental health or um, physical health, a more intellectual um, capacity yeah. is sometimes insurmountable yeah. for um, for people. Is there are there any um, are there any stories? Is there one anyone that you remember that was particularly hard, but by kind of working through, you had a success out of it? Yes, I mean, uh, yes, I I did work with a um, parent who had mental health issues who was raising. Um, her children, and in particular, a son who um, had autism and had his own um, mental health and behavioral issues yeah. um, associated with his autism. Right. And um, I became very close with this family mm. and um, took on um, the son as almost like a mentee. Um, and spent time with him yeah. and with the family and became close with the family. And I think I saw success out of that. Um, and in addition to success from um, the services, I was, I was able to help 
the family acquire for him. Um, So I did maintain a relationship with that family for some time. And that felt good, you know, Um, as a parent advocate, many times it it really was a feel good job. Um, And even though I knew I wasn't um, making as much money as I could had I gone to um, a larger law firm setting or a more corporate setting. Yeah. It felt, my job felt really good. Right. It made me feel good. And, and I like to think that it made the families feel good to sure. know that somebody cared and was in their corner. Yeah. I think it, from what I hear you saying too, it's like, it's almost like there's this huge, this is what it feels like listening to you. There's this large gap in terms of a need for power and advocacy and ability that lawyers who do public interest law are there to fill. And it may not be remunerative financially, but from a, a personal um, satisfaction and as and a social impact level, there's a high return on the investment of that time and effort for those lawyers. Is that, would that be accurate? You think? Yes, definitely. Um, so one other question about advocating. So what I mentioned about the parents is, so I'm a parent, I have three kids and one of them is in, in, uh, in kindergarten and he's, we've had challenges in school with him because he's got like high needs. We think like he was counting to hundred by the time he was two, he's, you know, six now and he knows every state in the country. He could tell you how many countries are in every continent in the world, um, and that I didn't even know that Sweden had um, cantons and Egypt had governance. Who knew? But he knows. And he's just, he's just a sponge for learning. And the schools just don't um, keep up with that. So I wonder, there's there's this a special need side that's for kids who are sort of, for lack of a better word, you know, not keeping up with, say, the average performer. And then there's some special needs, at least this is what my wife and I see, that they're ahead of the curve and the schools aren't helping in that way. And we've had multiple meetings with the teachers and multiple meetings with the principals and just really had to struggle to get help for him in that way. And we're looking at doing an IEP for him and getting him, you know, um, tested for different types of things to see how they could help him excel in class. Is there a side of this that you see for kids who are accelerated learners or who are high learners or things like that? Or um, the parents, are there folks advocating in that way? Are there things people could do in that way to help their kids um, succeed or, or advocate for in the schools? With respect to special education, where you see high achievers is often with children who are on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And they may be very high achievers intellectually and academically, but they struggle with the social and sometimes the emotional aspects of creating and maintaining relationships or just interacting with people in general. And so for those kids, yes, there are services because um, their their disability in this situation, autism, um, is affecting their ability to be successful in school. So for a child who has not been diagnosed with a disability and is a high achiever, the um, 
the path for them usually is in the gifted program in public schools. It's usually in the gifted program and each public school run their gifted program differently. Some don't start until later elementary grades. Um, And even then it may not fit your child. So what I've learned as both being an advocate within special education and working with schools in general, and now as a parent is that every child is an individual. We're all individuals, um, but particularly children and their learning needs are very individualized. And so as a parent, I think it's important to um, listen to your intuition. If you think something, um, if you think your child learns differently, whether that's accelerated or whether they are deficient in some ways, um, listen to your intuition and, and take it upon yourself to try to seek out those services. And that may mean um, going to a non-traditional school right. in some instances. Okay. Now, you did this at Adams ESQ. Then you started working in your own firm um, as a lawyer. Um, out in Los Angeles. So can you talk a little bit about what you did there and how that progressed along to a couple different um, law firms you worked at, your own, Martin and Martin, and then the law offices of Kenneth Riggins um, interspersed with some work uh, in Los Angeles with Leo and Trejo. Um, Can you talk about what what work you did at some of those different law firms that you're on and the others and kind of how that fit into the narrative that you're building for yourself? Right. I think with new... With each new opportunity, I was seeking to learn something new or add on to the experience that I already had. Yeah. So when I started my own practice, I was, um, at the time, I wanted to expand my practice outside of special education. Got it. And so I took on a lot of different types of cases, perhaps to figure out um what I enjoyed or if there was a particular area that I wanted to further develop in. Um, because with special education, I enjoyed special education. However, I did not want to be um, kind of contained in that specialty and yeah. only be able to do special education because I was still very young in my career. Yeah. And I hadn't decided yet if that's what I wanted to make my entire career in. Got it. And so in my own firm, I was doing things like um, landlord tenant law, mm. some family law, bankruptcy, mm. and then just some general, you know, business litigation or general, um, contractual work with um, between employers and employees. And so I learned a lot in that time of having my own firm, in addition to learning how to run a business. So that's where I wanted to go that direction. And starting a law firm, my impression is that would be like a challenging thing to do, especially in the middle of LA, where I'm sure there are lots and lots of attorneys. Um, how do you how did you think about that? How did you start your own firm? What does it sort of take? And then what does it take to be successful running your own firm? As obviously you were just mentioning, like how to run a business was a part of it, too. So um, what does it take to start one and, and what does it take to, to do well at it? It takes money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I didn't really have very much at the time. There you go. Um, it was it was very challenging. Yeah. Um, but for me. I think um, 
the factors that allowed me to do it at that time were I didn't have any children. Yeah. I was um, single at the time. I didn't have any major financial commitments other than my student loans. Right. And so that was the perfect time for me to kind of take a leap of faith right. and to try it. And if this doesn't work, I can go get a job. That was always um, yeah. my fallback is sure. I will try it. If it doesn't work, I can go get a job, yeah. um, which is what I eventually did. Sure. But um, to start up, um, if you want to do it in in a way that is sustainable, right. I think you need a business plan, just like um, when you're starting any other business. You need to understand um, what your outflow of cash is going to be every right. month, um, and you need to determine um, how you want to start your law firm. So, and what I mean by that is whether or not you want office space. Yeah. Or whether you want to rent something like a virtual office, which yeah. is what I did. Okay. I rented a virtual office where I paid something around $100 a month okay. to have an address where I could have my um, mail sent, where I could have access to a conference room if right. I needed to meet with clients, right. and where I could rent an office space on an hourly basis if I needed that. Yeah, just to get work done just to get work done if I needed that for whatever reason. And that worked for me at the time because, like I said, I didn't have a huge pot of money to start up. And quite honestly, doing what I was doing, special education, and then taking other cases um, as they came along, I didn't need an office space and I didn't need to um, have this big overhead right. at that point. What else are you spending money on aside from these administrative costs for office and such what else you, what else does it take money to do so that's your biggest expense is your office space if you have it um, but you also will need to um, pay for legal research tools mm. online legal research resources or yeah. tools um, you need to pay for all of your office materials yeah and that includes things that when you're working for somebody else they're paying for and right. you're not thinking about it yeah. but right you need a computer you need a printer you need at that time a fax machine these days we don't use fax as much we do more scanning sure but you need a scanner um, and you need all of your letterhead um, business cards hmm. and um Anything else that you need to operate your day-to-day -day business, depending on your type of law, which could be file folders, notepads, yeah. pens, down to the pens. Yeah. All of these things, which somebody else was ordering for you and doing for you when you worked for someone and you just had to go into the supply room and get it. Right. Now you're responsible for everything. Right. You're responsible initially if you, um, if you do not hire um, support staff. Right. Um, you make you're responsible your for the phone calls, the emails, yeah. the appointments. Was that your situation? Your yes, I was a one woman show. Yeah. And if if I did have to do that differently, if in the future I started my own practice again, I would not do it that way. Mm. You know, I would. I would have support staff, at yeah. least one person. You need yeah. at least one person. Because what was happening for me was I realized I was spending as much time, if not more, 
running the business mm. as I was practicing law. Yeah. And it was the practice of law that was making me money. Right. And so it's almost like you're you're doing stuff paying that would you pay ten dollars an hour for when you can get hundreds of dollars an hour spending that time doing legal work. Exactly. Did you feel that? Did you know that at the time or was it just happening kind of so you were so into the work that you had, didn't have a chance to step back and think about it? I did know it at the time, initially when I started, but I wanted to get going first and yeah. see how much income I could generate Got it. before I again took on some overhead. Right Now I did enlist my mom to help me sometimes well, nice. and she was my my temp assistant when yeah. she when she could do it. Yeah. So how did you get clients? Um, you're starting from a standing start, like again, in a city like LA, that's, I'm sure there's tons of competition, even in the areas that you're in. How did you get new business? Within the special education world, there are um, panels that you can get on mm. that send you business. And then there are different um, listservs that you can get on and different um, referral lists that you can get on. And I got most of my clients in that way. Yeah. And then once you once you build up your clientele, most things are through word of mouth. Right. And if you do a good job, usually you know, your clients will refer you to other people. Right, right. Um, did your dad have any advice for you during this time while you're doing it that was helpful or that kind of helped you keep moving? He did. I mean, he um, operated his own practice for over 30 years. Wow. So I think his main advice is keep your overhead low. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, that's serious. I mean, wow. that, that makes a lot of businesses not just uh, law firms but businesses falter i think yeah that's interesting i like it's that basic of a of a requirement keep your overhead low and serve your clients well yes. and you can keep running now you eventually went back to working for somebody else in martin and martin and a number of other locations um did you decide and in, in your career look to to focus more so in that time back on the um, special education and, and that type of thing. Did you decide at this point after you had done a couple of years of running your own business that you wanted to, now this is what I know I want to do? I decided I wanted to continue on with education. I enjoyed it and it was sticking to me. Yeah. So yes, I decided I wanted to continue to develop that aspect of my practice, but I also wanted to continue to develop some other areas okay. of practice um, and specifically when I went to Martin and Martin, I wanted to develop my litigation practice. Got it. Um, litigation is a difficult thing to learn. I, I believe on your own, um, it is easier to do it within a supportive environment when right. you're working with people who have the experience and it's because it's very procedure driven and very rule driven. Mm. There are certain certain steps that you have to take along the way throughout a case once it's in um, litigation. Or and when you say it's in litigation, you mean like it's going to go to trial, and you you got to battle it out with somebody in the courtroom. So once a case is or a complaint is filed within in um, California, we have the superior court system, which yeah. is the um, the state court system at its initial level. Um, once a complaint is filed, litigation is everything that ensues after that. Yeah. 
Okay. And what are some key, like, so you, you were able to learn inside of Martin and Martin. What are some key skills that you feel like you sharpened up or gained in that time as a litigator um, going through that process? I think while I was there, I learned that I could do anything that I put my mind to because I was exposed to areas of law that I hadn't practiced in before. Um, There, specifically, I was exposed to employment law and employment litigation and also in representing um, cities and um, and then the the unique issues that cities deal with um, in terms of human resources and in terms of setting policy. And I was able to work on a lot of those things. And so my takeaway from that job was um, that I could do, you know, I could, with some exception of some of the more um, very highly specialized areas of law, I could I could do any type of law that that I put in the time and dedication to learn and um you know was determined to succeed and I felt I felt that confidence so yeah. I left with some confidence. Yeah. Yeah, did you so confidence is major I think in any career field um to have to know you can do it and it comes through experience. Were there any particular um like specific skills you think that you either learned or brought in that that still helped you to do well while you're there that you carried out of the process? I think a skill that I left with was my ability to put in the long hours, if that makes any sense. Hmm. Um, If you talk to a lot of lawyers, um, some of the horror stories or the fears going into... um, the lawyer life is yeah. how many hours you're going to be working. Mm. You know, are you billing 10 to 12 hours a day mm. and the billable hours? Yeah. That's a big thing you hear yeah. um, when you're talking um, to lawyers. And at that firm, there was a focus on billable hours and working a lot of hours. Yeah. And that was my first experience with that. And I was nervous i i would say in the beginning whether whether i would succeed in that type of environment because that's not the environment that i had come from when you have your own firm you know you work your own hours right. you set your own schedule and some days yeah you are working 10 to 12 hour days but perhaps the next day you take a day off yeah. but when you're you know in a law firm that has um, expectations for billable hours, you don't necessarily have that luxury. And so I left that firm knowing that um, if I wanted to, I could succeed in that type of um, kind of more of a high stress, higher intensity environment, which is, um, I would probably say, generally the environment of a litigator hmm. or someone who is a trial lawyer. Right. Okay. Now, what about, so you moved to the law offices of Kenneth Riggins. Uh, that, that took you to Indiana. Um, what was different about that as compared to what you had done before? So before I moved to Indiana, I um, joined a law firm called Leal and Trejo okay. here in Los Angeles. And at that point, I had made my decision that, um, 
I really did enjoy education, uh, but I wanted to learn the aspect of education from the perspective of the school district. Got it. I had spent my career up until that point being a parent, attorney, and advocate. And now I wanted to learn how things worked from the inside. Okay. And so... So are you representing the other side in this case? Yes. And okay. so at Leal and Trejo, I was able to represent um, school districts. Mm. Were you working for the enemy now? Not the enemy. <laughs> there are no enemies. Okay. In, no, not the enemy. The no other enemies. side. You were working for the other side. There are no sides. So, so it's help, all about the child. Help me understand then the, the difference before is before you're representing the families. Now you're representing the school districts. My sense. So, so where my, my jest came from is my sense is the law is a, um, American law is always spoken of as an adversarial type of, um, uh, environment. And so in these circumstances, help, help, help me understand how is it about the, how, how do you make it about the child whenever there are these two sides representing each other and what was important about you starting to learn from the school district side? The law is a very adversarial process and special education law is no different. Um, people are very passionate on both sides, on the parent advocate side and the school district side. Um, but I think a lot of it is being able to focus on um, helping the child because yeah. the child is at the center of the quote unquote dispute. Got it. And so whether you're a parent advocate or attorney or whether you are a school district attorney, um, I do believe there is room to focus on the child and not make the process as adversarial as it could be. Yeah. And that's always been my position. That's always been my take on it yeah. is to try to dis- diffuse any adversarial nature and refocus everyone's efforts on the child. So can you tell, so you talked a lot about, and you gave some good stories around how you were able to help parents um, f- figure out the situation, get the services they need to be able to provide supportive environment for the child. Um, what's an example of what you'd have to do at Leal and Trejo to represent now the school district? What 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 was an example kind of story situation where you had to help uh, and advocate on that side? So when you're working for a school district or a city government or a business, a corporate business. Yeah. Um, the things that you focus on are fairly the same. Um, the overarching things that you focus on are risk management pretty yeah. much. You know, you're advising your client. For me, it was uh, school districts. You're advising your client in a way to help them minimize exposure for litigation mm. or, um, I think what was unique in what I could do um, with um, my school district clients was also to advise them on ways to um, make certain changes within their programs or how to improve their programs from a legal perspective um, so that they could avoid um, future litigation. Yeah. And also so they could improve their structures um, for the benefit of their students. Yeah. 
And I wonder, so we, we talked a little bit about this um, before we came on that um, it's, it's very known that these issues, and you talked about it earlier, where people have these challenges are people who don't, who don't have the resources themselves. Usually they're poor and don't have a number of either the resources or education to advocate for themselves or to even know how to advocate or that they should advocate in some situations for themselves. And with regard to that, um, I'm interested and in, 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 I'm wondering about how for people of color, I, th- I think one of the biggest ways we can improve is through education. Um, and what you're doing is providing adv- advocacy for folks who may not even know all the resources they have to be educated in a way that can help them be successful. What are some places that are win-wins? Good for the student, good for the schools. So you can equip some people who are listening, maybe like me, or they may have like some of your past clients. Um, and, and folks on the listen to podcasts are people of color. How can they there be win-wins that they can advocate for um, to say, it's good. We don't want to hurt the school districts. We want to know what they're facing. And at the same time, we want to advocate for our kids and help them. What are some things that could be made easier? The most successful situations that I've seen where there is a quote unquote win-win for families and school districts is when they work together, when there's collaboration and when there's open communication and that that does happen in many schools where for instance the school is providing information to families on how to advocate for themselves and the school is providing resources to parents without the parents first having to ask for them right. and then the parents then in turn um feel comfortable with talking to um their teachers or staff about things. And there is not that adversarial um, kind of tone to things. Um, And those are the most successful examples that I've seen, but that takes individuals, you know, that I find that those are top down things. Hmm. So in a school system, if you have a superintendent who is very open and has focus on communication yeah. and collaboration, then that trickles down um, throughout the administration and to the schools. It becomes more difficult the larger your school district gets because there are so many moving parts. There are so many different individuals working um, within the schools. And and I think it's difficult for um the top to have exert as much control or oversight over um, everyone under the umbrella. Yeah. Um, And so I have seen it be be more successful in smaller school districts um, or in, in a larger school district like um, LAUSD within certain schools where again, it's a top down um, analysis where if the principal of your school is all about open communication and collaboration. That's going to trickle down to the teachers and other staff. Okay. Okay. No, that's good. That's helpful because I think too, some people who are listening may be in those positions where they are struggling with parents. And if they understand that communication is best and early, and that's helped with us too, when the teachers don't say anything, when we ask a question, we sort of assume apathy, you know, Um, maybe wrongly. 
but that's what it communicates to us. But when they do communicate and talk to us, it, it makes you feel better. At least like they, they care and, and they want to do something about it. So I, I think that is helpful. Um, I think also for parents, sometimes as parents, we are very passionate yeah. about our kids. And sometimes when we're approaching the teachers or administration, we can come off very accusatory, right? right? Like, what are you doing for my child versus us going in with a collaborative spirit yep. and saying, what can we do together? How yeah. can we help? And so sometimes when parents go in already kind of ready feeling adversarial, ready to fight, thinking that whatever they're going to ask for is going to be denied, that does put um, schools or staff administration on guard. Yeah. Because I think that's just a natural human reaction. Sure. Um, and so from both sides, I think it's important to come in with a collaborative spirit. Yeah. And and flexibility. Right. Because your answer may not be the only answer. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Humility and flexibility is, is really key. Um, you now, I want to fast forward to now you're an administrative law judge. What does that actually mean? So as an administrative law judge, I am, I preside over quasi, we call it quasi judicial hearings, which means it is not a full on trial and the rules that we use with respect to evidence and the procedures of our hearings are not as strict as a um, traditional state or federal court. Okay. And so it's the process is designed to be a little more accessible to individuals who may not have legal representation. Okay. And that is particularly true with the area of law that I adjudicate, which is special education. And so there is a um, special education division within the California Office of Administrative Hearings, um, which um, is designed to um, both mediate, we do mediations, and I can talk about that a little bit more, and adjudicate um, special education cases throughout the state of California. And the idea is that we want parents to be able to um, advocate for their children and use this process if there is a dispute without having to go and get a lawyer. Got it. Now, so that's, I was wondering, the point of this is this different um, framework for handling these cases, these situations, is because alternatively, I imagine there used to be those things would end up in court. But now they're trying to provide ways that are less legally rigorous and inaccessible for people who may not have that type of representation. Is that that's what I think I'm hearing? Is that why this thing, this quasi judicial uh, system exists or? Well, historically, um, there really was no venue Mm -hmm. for um, parents to pursue disputes with, you know, regarding their children who who had disabilities and children with disabilities really were um were ignored in many ways and were not um were not being educated 
in the way that they should be. Yeah. And so throughout the decades, there has have been improvements in the laws surrounding children with disabilities. And through those improvements, um, the legislature created um, a process for parents to um, pursue any disputes they had, parents and school districts to pursue right. disputes that they had. And so um, through the federal law, the states were charged with creating this process to allow families to mediate um, or have hearings with school districts if it got to that level. Hmm. And so that's how, um, so the California department of education was charged with setting up that process. And so they have contracted with our office to um, see that process through. Yeah. So that's the way. That's a, It's a convoluted way, right. but that's how it all came together. Yeah. And so, um, yes, the idea is that families should not have to go through state court, federal court, yeah. which are um, complicated processes. And probably expensive, And too. very expensive processes. Yeah. Um, and so this is a way for families to... Um, have a more accessible way and a quicker resolution right. than they would get through state or federal court. So a lot of um, lawyer friends of mine, the a goal of theirs is to become a judge. And it's a prestigious role. Um, a lot of authority and, and, um, and responsibility that exists there. And you've achieved that. Um, and I, I think it's, I think it's pretty impressive and, and kind of cool. So I wonder how did you, how, how did you get that opportunity? I mean, you've practiced law for a number of years. It's still, you know, you, you are able to achieve that role. What does it take for a person to get to the role of becoming a judge as you have? I wish I had a roadmap. I had no idea that um, I would become an administrative law judge this was not necessarily on my radar, um, but I think that if I look back on um, the trajectory of my career, I would say that um, the diversity in my experience yeah. has helped get me to um, this position, yeah. and the thirst to learn as much as I could about each area that I pursued right. gave me that diversity of experience, um, which now that I'm in this position, I can see how it has helped me. Hmm. Hmm. So having like a wide array of experiences, what helped someone to get there? Did you have to get elected at all or what's, were you selected? Was it an interview thing? How did you get put there? So for my particular position, it was an interview process and it it was an interview process similar to any process you would go through to get a a job through the state of California. Yeah. And, um, I met the quality, the, the basic qualifications for the job. I had to send in a resume, a writing sample, and then I had to do, there's a state exam that you do, um, Mm. on the state of California website, um, to qualify for, um, even being considered for the position. So I did all of that. And then after that, I went through an interview process with, um, the office of administrative hearings, which involved um, interviewing with a panel of other judges. And 
and I was offered the position. Um, there are other um, judicial positions which you do have to either be appointed to or elected right. to. Um, but in this particular position, it was an application process. Do you have any theme music when you come in that you listen to? You don't have any? I don't have any theme music. <laughs> you don't have like Sometimes any. I wish I could, but I feel like that would not be judicial. <laughs> you could just set a new trend. So for in, in my job, it's very unique because we travel. We are almost... okay considered traveling judges because we want to make the hearings convenient for the families and the school districts. Mm -hmm. So we travel throughout the state to the different school districts. So it's not like I'm, I have one courtroom and I'm always in the same courtroom and I can decorate it how I want to decorate and have my theme music. Um, and, and so when I'm traveling to the different school districts that I'm setting up, I have to set up recording equipment similar to what you have set up today. I'm like, man, it would be great for me to have my music playing while I'm setting (laughs) up um, my equipment. But then I'm like, this probably would not be very not judicial. judicial if, yeah. um, well, so with that, I wonder what you just said makes me think of perception. Right. And I think as a young, very young looking, you're like my wife, like you probably would be you probably be 60 and people still think you're 35 or 40, you know, and she, my wife, who's a doctor, sometimes they'll walk in the doctor's office and be like, where's the doctor? And have since she was, you know, as long as she's been practicing, um, have you faced any of these type of the bias or perception issues throughout your career, either as an attorney or as a judge that are, you know, either sort of some obvious things or some lesser but but noticeable things that you've had to deal with? I would not say that it's risen to the level of bias, but I've definitely had my share of comments mm. Um, when I first started practicing, people used to think that I was the student. Mm. And that was interesting because I was dressed in a suit. Yeah. I don't know very many high school students who dress in suits, but it's possible. Right. But I would get those comments like, are you the student? And sometimes people would think I was the parent, yeah. which was interesting because oh, so like I could be a it's young... It's like between you and the, or the parents and the student and the school, and they think you're the student in the case. Right. <laughs> wow. Right. Exactly. Okay. Or people would think I was the parent sometimes, which was interesting because I would think, oh, I can be a young parent, but I can't be a young lawyer. (laughs) That was interesting. But it's never risen to the point where I felt any strong sense of bias or felt like I was unable to do my job. Yeah. Do you? So in this arena of representing students with special needs, are there you are the system now, right? Um, or a significant part of the system. Do you see any parts of the system where like, if you could remove some obstacles to make it easier, um, say for people of color or people who don't have representation in general, stuff that you would change or, or move or, or adjust to make it smoother, easier for them. And we're talking about who are we talking about right now? Um, any of the players, so like the, the the kids who have these needs, these parents of color who or parents who don't have resources that are coming up. So, so there's kind of two parts to the question. One is, are there obstacles that exist for them that you've noticed having been a part of it for a number of years, advocating for the parents, advocating for the kids? 
um, representing the schools and school districts that you see like, man, there's just some gumming up in the works that you, that you're free to talk about. Um, so are those obstacles there? And if they are, how would you remove them? Which ones would you remove if you could? There are definitely obstacles. I think that they are the obstacles that exist over um, many different areas in life. And those are lack of information, lack of access to information, and oftentimes the lack of desire to pursue the information. And so if I could remove obstacles or really create a situation where um, there was a more free flow um, or, again, collaborative. I'm very, I go back to that a lot, a collaborative environment of information. Um, I would try to create that situation at the school level yeah, because um, that is where a lot of parents get their information. So what's, what's an example of a lack of information, either the information available or, or a lack of people willing to seek the information that you've seen? Detrimental effects. Happen. I think it's both. You know, honestly, I think it's both. I think that. Do you have a story that you that you can think of that that you that you can tell that's like, man, or a, a type of story where it's like, man, if there's just some more information here, it could be easier. I don't have a particular story. I I think that um, generally, um, I think that there is a responsibility on both schools and on parents to again work together collaboratively and and what that looks like though is um, schools oftentimes taking the initiative in that because the schools are generally the ones who have the information yeah and so the next step is making that information accessible to families and creating what kind a, of information are we talking about? Okay, so if we're talking about special education, yeah. the information is about the process. Yeah. And even before you get to the process, the information is signs. What are the signs that your child may need special education? Yeah. And clearly if your if your child has a physical disability or a more severe disability, um, that is not that piece of it is not as important because you've already recognized those yeah. signs and there are probably medical professionals involved. But for those children who have more mild um, disabilities such as such as ADHD, yeah. such as even autism, mild yeah. autism, um, such as learning disabilities or different types of emotional disabilities like um, obsessive compulsive disorder or um, oppositional defiant disorder or children who may have experienced some kind of trauma. What are the, and by trauma, I mean perhaps some type of abuse. Yeah. And what are the signs in recognizing that? And so the way that schools can do that is by 
putting on informational sessions at the school, inviting professionals who work in these different areas to come and speak at the schools at times that are convenient for parents. I have seen that happen um, at schools where um, either the school administration or the parent groups at the schools take a proactive approach in... um, having information sessions for parents in a myriad of issues, special education and general education issues. And, and then inviting, you know, making sure it's publicized well enough. So parents come and access it. Right. Are are any of these things existing now online now that there's a lot more uh, availability for the tools, at least to, to have it available. Have you seen where people make this stuff available even digitally? In special education, yes. Special education, there are many resources online. And um, and that's from larger organizations who um, whose focus is on um, educating parents and schools about special education. Um, but there are also various um, attorneys or advocates or educators who have put together things um, and have put them online. I'm going to ask a couple of, um, you know, what may be controversial-ish kind of questions. Um, But it is what it is. Um, So one of the things I wonder about is, and I, I think this is true, you could tell me if I'm just totally off here with parents of color that a number of these things that are now syndromes or disorders, some of them may be, you know, in the DSM or the, uh, like actual medical disorders or just be like, we read something on our son may have like hyperlexia, which is like an extreme desire to read. There's different versions of, of this. And one of them even has, they're not autistic, but they have like autistic tendencies that may fade over time. Some of the things that we, you know, wonder about, um, are these things like stuff that people are putting names to just kids are, are not acting right or they just need to get it together or they're not raised right at home or it's any of those type of things so, or put more, more carefully, are they over prescribed or over assigned in that way? Or are these real issues that are just being categorized well so they can help kids who may need help? I think a controversial issue over the years um, that I have um, come across, read about, is the over-identification of young black males in special education. Yeah. And oftentimes because of conduct or behavior issues. Yeah. And I believe there have been studies to do a comparison um, between the way that young black males are treated and how others are treated, female yeah. students or or um, non-black male students, right. how they're treated differently. And um, an example is if a young black male student is just a hyper kid, yeah. overexcited, that he may be labeled as a conduct problem. Mm-hmm. Where it may not be a conduct problem. He just may be a hyper kid. Yeah. Um, and that 
that same behavior, let's say in a non-black male, is not labeled as being a conduct issue. Right. And so, yeah, I, I do think there is information out there that suggests that that young black males are over-identified in special education. Yeah, and I think that's, so that was, you just jumped right into the deep end because that was my next question about the school-to-prison pipeline as part of what you're describing, that these young men, black men in particular, black boys, get labeled a particular way and then they go into either special ed or um, they're suspended frequently and then once they're suspended, they don't keep coming to school and if they drop out of school, then all the negative repercussions of what happens down the line for them. Um, you obviously, I'm sure, are at the middle of some of these situations. What are some ways that that could be turned around? Like, how could we potentially help, you know, ameliorate those effects, you think? That is a loaded question that could take a whole nother session just to talk about that, yeah. um, which is a, a a good topic to follow. I yeah, think you well, should find an educator to talk about that. Or someone who's <laughs> in the, well, you're in the middle of it though, right? Like I got to imagine that, and, and obviously you, certain cases you can't talk about and whatnot, and we will do a follow-up show on that because I think it's important. But you're in the middle of, what I thought about first when I heard the, the you know, when we talked about your career is you have to see this happening live, you know? Like, this kid is just, he's just a wild kid. I'll, I'll even use my son, and I don't want to put all his business in the street, but there was, like, this thing where, like, I felt like talking to the teacher that my kid was just particularly hyper, particularly disruptive, particularly negative in class. And I'm just like, and, and I, I, my son is high energy, so he stresses me out and my wife, too. So I, I told him, like, yeah, he's hyper, kid. So, but I started to believe things about my kid that I don't know were true. And then I went and sat in on a class. It took me a month and a half to get the opportunity to set in. They made me set at a particular time. And I only had 20 minutes where I could be there one time for the whole school year, which my dad always came to my classes whenever he wanted to. So it sounded strange to me. It also seemed opposed to what the LAUSD um, regulations that I read said that was reasonable. But even setting off, even dealing with that, I said, okay, let me sit in for those 20 minutes. Sitting and watching those kids in class, about 25 of them, it's like it was like a a popcorn popper with these kids. Every one of them was bouncing up and down, jumping in out of this story time they're doing with the teacher all the time. Like she had to shush them in a 20 minute period, at least eight times. She had to stop to get the class back under control. And not just my son. 20 out of the 25 kids were jumping up, turning around, talking to each other, t- laughing and dealing with each other. And I and, and it was it a race thing. I don't know. I'm not going to put that on it yet. But it it is a place where you you got to get this kid now coming to with parents and fr- in front of you as an administrative law judge. And they're saying this is some bad kid and he's just a regular you know, young boy. So I don't know. I, I know there's only a certain amount you can say as being a judge in some of these cases, but I wonder, you know, how, how is it a big issue? How is it a big issue? I don't even know what I'm asking at this point. What, what are some of the things that you see that can maybe parents could say as advocating for themselves? How can they, how can they properly have their kids maybe diagnosed or characterized so they don't get put into that type of scenario on the on the wrong track. I think what you're describing is a systemic issue. Yeah. That doesn't only affect uh, black and brown kids, but it affects everybody in the public education system. Right. And 
our public education system from what I've experienced working within it and as a parent is overburdened in many ways. Hmm. Our class sizes are large and what you just described in your son's class is very real. Think about yourself being you know, one teacher, one adult in a room with 25 kids, especially when they're young and unfocused because six-year-olds are unfocused. They don't have executive function. They just don't. And so that's part of it. And so for um, kids who fall outside of the norm and who are... um, perhaps perceived as misbehaving or not following directions. There's just really not even the space to work with that kid on an individual basis. Because there's not the time. There aren't the resources in most cases to do that. Um, Now, special education is designed to do that. It is designed to create an educational program that is individualized for a child. And so sometimes I believe um, that some kids are placed in special education because there are no other options Mm. to address whatever may be going on with them. And that that's, it sounds like, because we, I went as far as joining a few Facebook groups one of them is specifically dedicated towards helping you design an IEP for your child, so, which is where I've heard that term before, individual education program, I think is, is what they're called. Um, so if there's not the space, what are we left to do? Judge, oh, judge. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you solve don't, all our problems right now. No, no. I think, I think there's not the space. You're right. Um, I don't know. I think you. I mean, I think there need to be changes in yeah. our. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Sorry. Education system. Here's what right? I was thinking. Part of what I think you're saying is some of the job that the schools are asked to do is not necessarily shouldn't be in their job description. Is what it sounds like. Like if special ed is where you deal with the kid who has some behavior issues that are totally related to something that's not even in the classroom. It seems like part of what you're saying is schools and teachers are asked to do things that they shouldn't be asked to do. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, What I'm saying is there is just not the the opportunity to do all of those things Mm. because, for example, let's say that, well, no, there are not the supports to do all that is needed because I, I believe it's impossible for one adult to meet the needs of 25 students. Yeah. Keeping in mind that all 25 students may have different needs. Yeah. So what I'm saying is there need to be changes or there can, could be changes within the system, which support teachers support the classroom, support kids. And I think I'm not an educator, so I can't speak to what those specific changes should be. Um, But I see there being room for improvement. Yeah. There's a school, I was listening to a a podcast on a show called um, Code Switch that talked about the school in D.C. called the Ron Brown College Preparatory High School. And they have six 
basically, um, what are those uh, counselors, like the school counselors? They have six of them for a class of 100 boys, where most schools may have one for an entire you know, class of hundreds of students. Their thought was they should have people that are specifically dedicated towards knowing who these, and it's a, it's a all, pretty much all black male boys school. They're trying to help kids. They, they outlawed suspensions at this school in a year. I think there were only six suspensions for kids who would get suspended sort of all the time. And they were really extreme situations, but they had these six counselors because they figured these people should know everything about these kids' lives so they can help them adjust to all the issues that may normally get dealt with like in a special ed class or not addressed at all and express themselves in certain ways. And maybe, maybe things like that resources allocated towards what those things are, the time to do them, maybe some of the ways that, that we could help some of our, our young kids succeed in environments where they're having challenges. Yeah, um, I think we have to remember that education is not done in a bubble. Yeah. And so earlier we were talking when we were talking about public interest law, we were talking about, um, individuals who were low income, maybe no income, and who had other life challenges. Right. The same exists for students. Yeah. So a student may come to school um, and at home they're dealing with poverty or they're dealing with lack of food, mm. lack of um, lack of parental supervision, lack of electricity, I mean, or even if those things are not in play and you're dealing with a student who um, may be fine in terms of socioeconomic level, but is dealing with some kind of abuse, emotional or physical, or some kind of trauma or some kind of internal battles or internal emotional issues. So I think it's hard to teach to one kid in a school, you know, sometimes the, um, I mean, it is, it's just hard to teach to one kid because kids are dealing with so much. And if you don't have the time or the space to get to know a student, like at the school that you brought up, it's hard to address that student's yeah. needs, even educationally, because those other things that are happening in their life might be a driving force to whether they're interested in education or not. Right. Yeah. Now, you obviously have the job of dealing with, in the special education world, the issues once they come to sort of a head. You also said you do mediation. Um, what does that look like when you have to mediate a particular situation what what are you what are you attempting to do and then what does that look like there so mediation is an attempt to resolve a dispute before it gets to um, a in my case a hearing level and what we do as the judges is we again go out to the school districts and we act as a neutral person um, to help the family and the school districts communicate with each other, um, express their concerns or issues, and then hopefully help them resolve them. Yeah. And that's so they don't, you know, the case doesn't escalate to the level of a hearing. So at a mediation, the judge is not making any decisions on the case. 
Mm. It doesn't, you know, the judge isn't saying you win, you lose, or your case is stronger than, and your case is weak. Um, the idea is just to create a safe space where people can talk and hopefully resolve um, their issues at a hearing the judge is making the decision. So once you get to a hearing, the power uh, is outside of your control as the family or the school district. You no longer have the power to determine the outcome. Right. Now you deal with both of those. Yeah, I do both. So I do mediations and I do the hearings. Got it. Got it. And, um, how is it like, do you, is it hard work? I got to imagine dealing with these situations, a person who's, entry into this career field was based on compassion. I got to imagine that it's, it's challenging emotionally to deal with the situations or how, how is it for you? I, it can be challenging. There can be situations where, for instance, if I am the hearing judge making the decision, there are some stories that tug at your, um, heartstrings. Um, but, um, may not um, rise to the level of being against the law or in violation of the law. And that's what we're charged to do as the judges is to apply the law. And that does not always coincide with your compassionate side necessarily. So it can be challenging. How do you, how do you square that circle? How do you, how do you, what is it in you? Like, what do you pull on? What do you draw on to, to make the decision that you have to in situations where it can be difficult like that. I personally, I, I just try to focus on the law. Mm. It is, it's not my job to right every wrong, you know, that's just not my role right now. And so, um, I can't look at things in that way. You know, you just have to, um, hope that things work out in Mm. those type of situations. Mm. Um, and that's it, you know, that's it. My focus is on the law and, um, applying it the way it's intended to be applied. Huh. Does he, are you able to, is it difficult to process it or how do you process it when it's like, this is a bad law, but I got to This, the law is what the law is. Sometimes that happens, yeah. you know, sometimes laws can be inconsistent, um, or need updating. Yeah. Um, but again, um, right now, that's not my role. Right. Right. So there is somebody else out there who has taken that role. Yeah. And they are working towards changing the laws or improving the laws. Yeah. And so, with that respect, you know, I kind of have to stay in my lane. Got it. Now, you also, one of the things I found interesting is you've been involved outside of just doing your job, you've been involved in a number of social organizations with the Deltas. Um, and also with the Black Women's Lawyers Association of L.A. Um, now as the president-elect. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what have you, like my wife is in the Association of Black Women's Physicians, so I hear a lot of discussion around what black women as doctors deal with and what doctors in general deal with. But from a black women's lawyer's perspective, what are some of the things that made you want to be president? And what are some of the issues you're helping to make better for black women lawyers here in L.A.? I think what's what is important with organizations like Black Women Lawyers is to create a network um, and almost like a um, a safe place 
um, or comfortable place for black female attorneys to come and seek mentorship, um, to share war stories, Mm. um, and just to socialize with each other because oftentimes we are the minorities in our, um, respective jobs. Right. Um, we, there may not be very many other black female attorneys around to speak freely to. And so I think it creates that type of space. And I think it's very much, um, needed, um, for us to be able to network with each other and to, um, and, and kind of create a sisterhood in an essence. Yeah. So what are some of the top issues or concerns that you feel like, okay, we have to keep dealing with this or we have to keep getting stronger in this area or keep helping new lawyer, new black women lawyers with or keep helping each other with? What are some of those areas that you, what are some things that you deal with on a consistent basis um, as black women lawyers? Challenges. Well, I think it starts with the pipeline. You know, I think the more black women lawyers you have practicing, um, the less, you know, issues, I guess, quote unquote issues. And let me ask it better. Like you network for solidarity around what type of issues or what are some of the war stories? Like not the actual stories, but what are some of the themes of the war stories that are consistently dealt with? Um, One area is finding um, consistent mentors or advocates within your own organization. Yeah. So somebody who is going to um, help develop your career. Hmm. That is difficult. Um, That is something that I hear is difficult for those who are working um, for firms or organizations where there are not very many minority or um, black female attorneys. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's probably the biggest issue. Okay. What's the impact of that? I mean, the impact is that you can feel very isolated and that you don't necessarily get the most sought after projects and that affects your career trajectory and your ability to move up in your company, organization, firm, or wherever you are. What is like, what is something that you all try to advise people to do to overcome that? that issue of, of not having good mentorship. I don't think that's an issue. I mean, something that you can necessarily overcome. Hmm. I think having a good mentor is crucial in, um, continuing to have success in your career. Now that mentor may not necessarily be within your organization. And so if you're unable to find someone within your organization, seek that out from someone, seek that out, particularly from someone who is where you're trying to go. Right. Right. Yeah. And that could be within your organization or it could be outside of your organization. But I, I also think it's important to be proactive about that. Yeah. You know, don't wait for a a mentor to seek you out. You have to start developing those relationships in an organic way as opposed to walking up to somebody and saying, Hey, can you be my mentor? Yeah. That's not very natural. Sure. And, um, 
and may not be very successful. Yeah. You know, a person who has achieved a certain level probably has a lot of people asking to be their, right. their um, mentee. How do they organically develop it? Alternatively? Yeah, try to put yourself in networking situations where you can have conversations with that person or others um, without it being an interrogation or an interview type of um, situation, just getting to know somebody. Um, And then I, 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 that is one reason I think organizations like black women lawyers is important because we've kind of created that, that space um, for students, law students or young attorneys to come and do that without feeling like um, it's, it's uncomfortable in any way. I mean, when, when we go to certain events, we expect, we expect questions or we welcome questions. Those of us who are more experienced. That's very nice. And I think that's, that's good within the context organization. I got to imagine that it also helps as they build that muscle, maybe it gives them confidence to do the same thing outside of your organization. Some of the younger attorneys and law students. Did, have you hopefully, found that? Yeah. Hopefully, yes. Um, should they start as early as in law school and, and prior to that developing these relationships? Or would you advise that as well? Yes, I think so. Because yeah. when you're in law school is when you're trying to figure out um, what direction you want your career to go in. And I've, I've spoken to many law students who wanted to go into education law and who just called me up or sent me an email and said, can I take you to lunch or can we go have a coffee if yeah. you don't want to, you don't have the money for lunch? Can we go have a coffee? Can you, are you willing to speak to me on the phone for 20 minutes? Right. And it's those um, situations where, you know, I thought, you know, that person will likely be successful hmm. because they're taking the initiative to seek out the information um, that they need and that yeah. they want. Besides that initiative and your experience with these different organizations you've been a part of, what have you noticed besides initiative that would be an indicator for someone being a success in their law career? Um, flexibility. Hmm. Is important in what dimension? Um, flexibility and what you're willing to do work-wise. Yeah, you may go into um, a job thinking, "Oh, I just want to focus on special education." For me, for instance, um, but your employer may have other needs that yeah. they need you to help with, and so being able to be flexible and to go outside of your box or your your thoughts of what you want to do is right. important to expand which again will expand your experience i think that's important i um i think it's important to outside of flexibility to have focus hmm. um and to set goals yeah. on what you want to do and also to have some patience hmm. And not in the, you know, we hear um, in the age of millennials that nobody wants to stay in a job. Everyone's looking for the next best offer, the next best thing. And um, there's something to be said for, for that. And I, you know, 
what that brings to somebody's career. Sure. But there's also something to be said for um, being patient and making sure that you learn what you have set out to learn yeah. in any position before you move on to something else. Very nice. What about you? So you you had your dad as a mentor and some of your other relatives. Who were some other mentors who were valuable in your development of your professional career? I think they were my major mentors. Um, My, just a life mentor um, has been both of my grandmothers, my Mm. maternal and paternal grandmothers, who both were very hard workers and at the forefront of leadership at the time that they um, came of age, where it was not popular for women to be in roles of leadership. So I've learned a lot of life lessons from them. Yeah. Um, What's one good lesson? Don't, don't let anyone ignore the haters, right? That's (laughs) right. right, That's what it is. But, but you know, um, don't let anyone tell you who you are, Mm. you know, forge your own path. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Oh, what else? Uh, who, what other mentors have you had? Throughout my career, I've been very lucky to have um, mentors who are my bosses. Okay. And I have, for the most part, been in very supportive environments. I have worked for primarily women and or minority bosses. Mm. And so I never felt like I had to prove myself because of my race or my gender and that in a in and of itself created um an environment where i could thrive and where i could focus on my work and not overcoming those things did you seek that or did it just happen that way i think it just happened that way quite honestly yeah and living in a city like la it's not really that hard sure. either. I mean, because there's so di- much diversity here. Right. So what about books? What are three books you would give as a gift? So I thought about this. Good. And I couldn't even think of three. That's a hard question. <laughs> as really. many as you have is good. I know. Um, I do. I like you. I like a lot of biographies. Sure. Um, I like to hear people's stories, but that's not on my, those are not on my list. Um, one of my favorite books is called The Alchemist mm. by Paulo Coelho. Yeah. And he's a Brazilian author. And that book, I believe, was written in the 1980s originally in Portuguese, but has since been translated into many languages and it's a very simple reads short book and um it's it is a a fiction but um it really translates into a self-help kind of book and it's all about um having faith and following your destiny and not letting um yourself get get um distracted from following your destiny it's a very uplifting story and anytime i feel the need to have you know a little um push or reminder of um what i'm trying to accomplish i read that book very nice and then another book which is not um which is 
I remember reading as a young lawyer, which it's not about being a lawyer, is called Smart Women Finish Rich. Okay. And I've read that several times as well. And that book is about um, taking a hold of your financial health um, as a woman. And it really looks at it from the perspective of historically, traditionally, Um, women have allowed the men in their lives, whoever that may be, to control the finances and really have been in the dark about um, financial health and progress. And that in order to um, establish that, you really have to learn about financial health and well-being. And that's as a mother, as a wife, as a business owner, um, or as just somebody going throughout your career. Yeah. Um, so that's another one I'd recommend. I like it. Good. Those are like two good ones. I think you're the second person I recommend Alchemist. I think I need to read that book now. What do you do for fun? Um, I know you're not, I know you're not to all work and no play. What do you do for any guilty pleasures? What do you do for fun? Mm, I really like to travel. Both my husband and I have that in common and we like to travel and explore new places. And now that we have kids, we like to do that with our kids too. Nice. So any chance that we get to um, get out of this city, we do. Um, any although, cool lately destinations? Um, we went to Portland, Oregon nice. um, a couple months ago. That was fun. Um, and we usually go somewhere with the kids. Um that's in driving distance. So Palm Springs or Arizona, Mm -hmm. we went to Sedona, which is very beautiful. If you've never been where you get to see the, um, red rock formation. And, um, before we had our daughter, I used to take, um, our son on a road trip every summer and we would drive throughout the Midwest and the South and just stop and explore. So that's probably my biggest guilty pleasure is just traveling and exploring as much as I can. My husband and I have a goal of visiting every country in the world before we die. So nice. How many have you gone so far? Oh, I don't know. Probably 20 plus. That's good. That's a really yeah. good start. Yeah, That's it's a very good nice. start. We have many more to go. Very nice. I, um, my mom used to do the same thing. We would drive like to, I grew up in the Dallas area. So we drive like to Hot Springs, Arkansas and see the hot springs. And we drove like down to South Padre Island to see that stuff down there. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. We like doing road trips and stuff. Now that all the countries, that one's a little bit more challenging. That is more challenging. What's your favorite country you visited so far? So far... You know, and this is going to be like an interesting, uh, interesting one. I think my favorite so far is Panama. Mm. And it's a beautiful country, but that's not the reason. The reason is because that is the first country that I have visited that is majority black and brown, Mm. but not poor, if that makes sense. So walking through Panama City... Um, people who are going to the corporate positions are black and brown. Yeah, And so it was the first place that I'd visited where I didn't feel like I stood out yeah. as a person of color. Um, not of color, but as a black female. Um, or um, a place where I didn't feel like 
um, I had to stay on the resort because outside of the resort was quote unquote unsafe, right. which is what you hear a lot in other majority black and brown nations in the Caribbean, for right, instance. Right. So I really enjoyed that experience. Nice. I'd like to find more of that, you huh. know, like the majority black and brown nations that are um, not poor nations that are developed countries. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. That's awesome. And if people wanted to find you, do you have like a, are you on LinkedIn or where can people find you online if they wanted to? I am on LinkedIn. Um, Where else might they find you online? As a judge, I'm supposed to keep a low profile. Okay, that's good. But I, you know, I'm on social media. I just do it sparingly. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. So y'all don't hit her up. She's a judge. She can't be all about there. You know, come to the... Association of Black Women's Attorneys meetings in LA. I, I I do like giving advice, so people do can reach out on LinkedIn if they have questions or seeking advice in certain areas. Perfect. Well, it's been an awesome interview with you. Uh, my guest today has been Tara Das. Tara, awesome interview. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. No problem. <laughs>